let me preface this episode with a, a little apology real quick. I know that according to my own schedule that episodes are supposed to be released every Sunday. However, as luck would have it yesterday, I had a real bad migraine. So when I should have been writing this episode and getting it done and recorded for you guys, I was instead laying on the couch with an ice pack on my head, generally hating life and feeling miserable. But today I woke up, felt much better. I was ready to to get this episode you know, uh, published and ready to go. But I kept getting distracted by one thing after another. If it wasn't a house chore or taking my dogs out or my PlayStation urging me to play another hour or two of Horizon Zero Dawn, it was just always something. So I had actually sat down to finish this episode and I got hooked by a movie that was on Hulu called The House That Jack Built with Lars or with Matt Dillon, directed by Lars von Trier. And... If you ever watch any of Von Trier's films, you know that he does a good job of recreating or simulating uh, fear and tension and anxiety and transmitting that to the viewer. And when you're watching a movie where Matt Dillon plays a serial killer who's sharing with you his most intimate and impactful murders that he committed and his thought process through it, that transmission of feelings of anxiety and, and stress and tension really make for compelling viewing. It was sometimes a very hard to watch movie, but it was very good. I, I couldn't put it in the same league or the same category as American Psycho, for example, because the directing style is just way too different. Uh, Matt or uh, Matt Dillon did a wonderful job. If he was a real, if his character was a real serial killer, he'd be the perfect candidate for this show but i digress anyway uh manuel pardo our actual subject for the today's episode he started out his life on relatively solid ground at least according to those who knew him after he finished high school he signed up for an enlistment in the u.s navy for a while much like i did and was stationed in pensacola florida after he fulfilled his obligation with the navy Florida weather seemed to suit him very well, so he stuck around and found work as a Florida State Trooper, as some other former military will sometimes gravitate towards a career in law enforcement after their service. Um, It's around that time that we will see his life, from a moral standpoint, start to deteriorate. It's difficult, though, to pin down exactly what triggered Manny to go down the path that he did. Some might argue that Manuel Pardo was a renegade vigilante who decided to take the law into his own hands to take down drug dealers and criminals that so easily slip through the system and avoid justice. Others will stick to the idea that he was a bad cop that turned to violence and crime in exchange for an easy paycheck. Welcome back to the Human Delicatessen. And as usual, I'm Chris, your host, fully recovered from my migraine, and today... I really couldn't find any really a reason to beat around the bush and have a lengthier introduction. So without further delay, let's get right into it. Manuel Pardo Jr. was born in New York on September 24th, 1956. During his childhood, he spent time as a Boy Scout and later joined the U.S. Navy for some years before finishing his enlistment and moving to Florida. I couldn't find much information other than that, 
so I can only assume that much of this part of his life was more or less uneventful and without notable incidents. In 1978, when Manny had reached the age of 21, he began working with the Florida State Highway Patrol. He would not, however, last long, and would eventually be forced to resign after it was found out that he had falsified over 100 traffic warnings, all within his first year of being in the service of the Highway Patrol. His resignation, in lieu of being fired, made it possible for him to pick up work again just two months later with the Sweetwater Police Department, which tasked him with patrolling part of Miami that was primarily home to a cluster of quiet suburban neighborhoods. Manny still couldn't help himself, though, from getting into trouble, because in 1981 he would be involved in a list of accusations of police brutality that had made their way to the Attorney General, along with three other officers. Even though the cases were dismissed, he would still find himself jobless a few years later when in 1984 he would travel to the Bahamas in order to testify in the defense of another ex-cop who was being held for trial for allegedly running drugs. It seemed that the Sweetwater PD weren't exactly thrilled with Manuel's association with a shamed former police officer who was now working as a drug trafficker. A few months after that, he had been unceremoniously fired and Manny would find himself on the other side of the law in May of 1985 when he and an associate named Roland Garcia were arrested on murder charges. About a month prior, Ramon Alvaro Cruz, a known drug dealer in the Miami area, along with his girlfriend Daisy Ricard, were shot and killed execution style on April 23rd. While the two suspects were in custody over the death of Ramon, the Miami-Dade PD announced that Pardo and Garcia were linked to seven other murders dating back from January 1986, almost a year after he'd been fired from Sweetwater PD. Evidence of each crime scene suggested that the cause for the murders was because someone had robbed the victims for their drug and money stashes and killed them in the end. What linked Pardo to all nine murders is that when he went to the hospital in New York, he had a bullet wound injuring his foot with a 22 slug that was pulled out that matched the ballistics of a gun that was used to kill Cruz and his girlfriend Daisy back in Florida. During a search of his property, the PD also discovered Pardo's journal that he kept over the previous years, which included his own entries about the murders that contained information that only the killer would know. If that wasn't damning enough, there was also news clippings about the murders added to the journal, along with Polaroid photographs that he had taken of the victim's bodies. Pardo's first victims were Mario Amador and Robert Alonso in January of 1986, where he had also killed execution style with several shots to their heads with a 22 Ruger after he forced them face down onto the ground. His third victim was Michael Milot a few weeks later, a few weeks later. Milot had supplied Pardo with uh, gun silencers a few weeks before and for some reason or another Garcia had lured Malat into Pardo's wife's vehicle and had been shot in the head by Pardo with a 9mm who had been hiding in the back seat. After cleaning the vehicle of Malat's blood they would end up take the car to a specialist to have the whole thing reupholstered. Pardo would then move on to kill Luis Robledo and Ulpiano Ledo in February pardon my pronunciation, when he and Garcia had broke into their home to rob them of their drugs and any money that was kept in the house. In April of that year, 
Pardo killed four more in two separate incidents, Farah Quintero and Sarah Musa, who were shot when they had gotten into an argument with Pardo about the value of a pondering that was really no more than worth $50 and some business about moving stolen credit cards. Also from the journal, the PD found that Ramon Cruz, Pardo's last victim, had been Pardo's employer in his drug running business and that by taking out many of Cruz's competitors, he simply needed just to kill Cruz himself so he could take over the operation. Although Pardo claimed in interviews that he killed Roman, uh, Ramon and Daisy out of anger because Ramon had backed out of several drug deals in the past. Unrelated to the murders, police also found several pieces of Nazi memorabilia would find out that Pardo was actually quite a huge fan of Adolf Hitler. Manuel Pardo would himself admit to having anti-Semitic and anti-black sentiments, believing that black and Jewish people are inferior races that needed to be exterminated. Pardo wouldn't see the inside of a courtroom for a few years due to his defense playing various legal maneuvers in order to delay a start date. The prosecution painted a picture of a corrupt ex-cop who would resort to working alongside the criminals he used to pursue and found himself getting addicted to cocaine and money in the process and taking enjoyment from killing other coke dealers so he could help himself to their money and their drug stashes, killing anyone who either witnessed his crimes or tried to get in his way. Pardo would not deny the murders, but he would argue that the motive given by the prosecution was entirely false. He would insist that he was essentially a one-man vigilante who took to taking out the worst and easiest to track down criminals in the Miami area, ridding the community of parasites and leeches, as he called them, that sold poison to the community. His version really didn't make sense to anyone, not even his own lawyer, Ronald Grolnick, who at one point tried to flip Pardo's statements as proof that his client was eligible for the insanity defense even telling reporters that all you needed to do was talk to his client for five minutes before you figure out that he's completely out of his mind. When Pardo took the stand, he still kept to his word, going against the advice of his court-appointed lawyer and doubling down on his intent. Pardo made no effort to deny his involvement in the murders, but only regretted that his final body count had been so low that instead of nine, he wished he would have gotten up to nine victim, 99 victims. He would also say, while taking the stand, that he enjoyed killing them, that he felt that it was a righteous act, because someone had to remove the parasites and leeches off the streets, and that they had no right to be alive. He would admit that he would shoot the bodies of his victims several more times after they were already dead, to, in his eyes, further punish them for their crimes, as well as take the Polaroid pictures of their bodies to make sure they're always available to be on display in some form or fashion. Pardo would also take no offense to the prosecution's suggestion that he was simply a drug dealer taking out the competition for himself, but he would call their claims ludicrous and ridiculous. When con Even when he was confronted with the information that by his own records, he kept in his journal that Pardo had earned $50,000 from a successful sale of two kilos of cocaine. He insisted that he only kept about $2,000 for himself, which he only used to replenish his guns and ammunition, since the bullets at the time cost about 10 cents each. 
the prosecutor responded with a rhetorical question to Pardo, asking him if that meant it only cost about $1.30 to kill two victims who had been shot 13 times altogether. Pardo, with a grin on his face, would respond by saying, that's a pretty good investment, isn't it? So, unsurprisingly, the question of Pardo's sanity came under increased scrutiny and both sides of the trial called on psychiatrists to analyze Pardo's mental state and testify. The psychiatrist for the defense, Civil Marquet, Marquette, I think that's how you say it, insisted that Pardo was insane at the time of the murders, but sane as, and he was insane at the time of the murders, but sane as he sat there in the courtroom, and that while he knew the consequences of his actions, Pardo was unable to differentiate what was truly right from wrong in his crimes. A court-appointed psychiatrist would, on the other hand, insist that Pardo was indeed sane, but simply evil. Pardo would even agree with that argument, at least to the extent of his sanity, but would still disregard the psychiatrists in general, referring to them as whores who will say anything that you want them to as long as you pay them enough. What also likely hurt his chances of a lighter sentence during the trial was the evidence presented of his racist and Nazi sympathetic views, which included a tattoo of a swastika that he had put on his own dog, a Doberman Pinscher. He also didn't hesitate to say how he was inspired by Adolf Hitler and had read over 500 books that were primarily sympathetic or wholly advocating Nazism. Not an altogether well thought out choice, since there were five black jurors and two Jewish jurors on the panel. On April 15, 1988, the jury deliber deliberated for six hours before he was found guilty of nine murders and nine other felony counts of robbery and commission of a crime while using a firearm. Before the jury convened in order to consider the sentencing, Pardo's lawyer, as well as his parents, pleaded for leniency, still suggesting that Pardo suffered from an undiagnosed, deranged mental state. The prosecution's attorney argued the opposite that even though Pardo was altogether a weird individual, he was still quite sane, as, a sort, as the court-appointed psychiatrist had previously stated. Pardo seemed to be relishing his time in the spotlight, as he, he had told the courts during his own statement that he believed that he was a soldier who had completed his mission in the crimes, and that he wished to have a soldier's ending, to end his, his life honorably, via death penalty, rather than to waste away in state prison for years and years. The jury agreed with his request, and the judge would approve. In the end, Manuel Pardo would, would receive one death sentence for each of the nine murders, and even though it was overkill at that point, he would also receive 15 years for non-capital crimes he had committed during the murders. Pardo would receive an automatic appeal for the death sentence in 1990 in March, but after continuous back-and-forth arguments concerning his sanity between the public defender and the assistant attorney general, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the prosecution's favor and upheld the death penalty. Pardo would manage to gain a little bit of a fan base during the trial and afterward, with some viewing him as a kind of hero, similar to how many of the locals felt about Pedro Rodriguez, a.k.a. Killer Pete, who we talked about back in episode 9. Behind bars awaiting execution, Pardo would still find a way uh, in act to stay in action, at least 
romantically by placing personal ads in tabloid newspapers looking for female-only pen pals who, lonely and desperate for love, would send him thousands of dollars over the years under the delusion that he loved them. He had at one point, according to an investigation by the Miami Herald, had collected some $3,500 that was deposited directly into his prison canteen account by these women. The ad that he would post to the tabloids would usually read as follows. Florida inmate 116156. Ex-cop and Vietnam veteran. Took law into own hands and ended up in death row. Looking for a sensitive and understanding female to share correspondence with for a real and honest relationship. A question always comes to mind when we hear about people on the outside, statistically, mostly women, who seem to always be deeply attracted to prisoners and are willing to take such financial and personal risks by opening themselves up to a convicted criminal. There are those who are, more or less, groupies to, f to famous criminals and murderers. Ted Bundy ended up marrying a woman who fell in love with him after seeing him on TV after his arrest as did Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Charles Manson was very close to marrying his girlfriend and pen pal for years until he found out that she had made plans to have his body on display in a glass coffin and charge people to view his body after he had died. But for the most part, a fair amount of those who sign up to become pen pals with a convicted murderer do so because of a small variety of reasons. Some of them have a low self-esteem about their image and believe that a prisoner won't judge them since their romance will only play out over letters and emails. They will also sometimes feel like the prisoner will be more appreciative of their emotional and financial support, where there is little, there is so little of, it, of that in the confines of the prison walls. Some of them will also likely assume that since the prisoner, due to his or her current living situation, will have no choice but to remain faithful, which can be a huge comfort to some, although sometimes that couldn't be further from the truth, as it's known that prisoners can string along a sizable number of pen pals, all believing that they're the only one in the inmate's life, never hesitating to send more money to the canteen for cigarettes and ramen noodles. That's not to say that that's the case all the time. Many women and men will reach out to prisoner pen pal programs in order to simply provide friendship to someone behind bars, to give them someone to talk to on the outside and provide a little bit of normalcy. And in some cases, the inmate genuinely welcomes that lifeline that and reciprocates that friendship or romance honestly. It's with that kind of people, it's with that kind of hope that people can find themselves being conned by a prison inmate for favors and money. Such is the case with Barbara Ford, a woman who was nearing her 50s in Ohio who wrote Manuel Pardo and received a response from him soon after. He played to her emotions, telling her that he wanted someone special in his life that he could share his emotions and feelings with, that was able to see his crimes in a positive light, or at least look past them. He would, for a while, always address his letters to Barbara to as the love of my life. But he would quickly change his tone in later letters, always complaining that he needed a few bucks here and there to buy essentials to a prison inmate. Paper, stamps, envelopes, shampoo, etc. He would even include little stories to tug at Barbara's heartstrings, 
like when he said that his little daughter promised to save up all of her allowance so she could buy him a radio for his birthday. Barbara didn't hesitate to provide for Pardo for quite a while, sending him approximately $450 out of her yearly income, which was barely over $7,000. For about a year before he received Barbara's first letter, Pardo was also corresponding with and receiving money from 54-year-old Betty Iham from Oklahoma, who worked part-time at a local Walmart and had been sending him about $1,200 total over their time, writing hundreds of letters back and forth, always referring to each other as husband and wife. Pardo would eventually screw up, though, like most people do who cheat, and he would send a letter to Betty that had been meant for Barbara. When Barbara confronted him about his scheme to play with her emotions in order to con her out of her hard-earned money, he responded arrogantly and insulted her intelligence at threatening a man on death row with him exposing him publicly. While what Pardo was doing was morally wrong, he actually had not broken any rules or laws. So in actuality, there was nothing that Barbara could get to could do to get her money back or see him reprimanded for his actions. The state of Florida had actually deemed it illegal to deny any inmate access to the outside world via letters or correspondence, including placing personal ads and soliciting gifts from willing and gullible pen pals. Manuel Pardo would continue to look, try to hook lonely women into sob stories and heroic versions of his life for money and attention for 26 years he spent on death row until he was executed by lethal injection on December 11th, 2012. And thus ends today's tale on Manuel Pardo Jr. I wish there was a lot more to dive into in regards to his state of mind and the psychological aspects of his behavior, but more often than not, when I'm doing my research, a lot of emphasis isn't given on what goes on inside the mind of a killer unless the crimes are particularly heinous and savage or they're the bloody breadcrumbs of a serial killer. And that's another interesting distinction that's worth discussing, I think. Manuel was, by definition, a serial killer. But without further investigation into his mental state and the motives behind his murders, it's difficult for me, at least, to put him in the same category as BTK or Gary Heidnick, one of our recent subjects. Personally, I feel like he was more of a murderer for profit which certainly went against his idea that he was painting himself as a hero. But regardless of how he's labeled and what his motives were, he was still really nothing more than a cold-blooded killer who took the lives of others for his own gain, even though he had originally seemed set on choosing a profession that focused on serving the public. And for that, even after two decades of living out his days on death row, conning lonely women out of their money, and taking away their money so he could spend it on cigarettes and ramen noodles, he still finally paid the ultimate price. Thank you again for listening, as you always do, week after week. If you guys are still enjoying this podcast, please pass along information to anyone else you know who might enjoy a visit to the Human Deli to listen to our condensed true tales of depravity. You can point them to my Human Delicatessen Facebook page, And of course, you can also email me at humandelipodcast at gmail.com if you have any episode suggestions. Honestly, guys, 
I set up that email for the reason so you, so you guys could do that. But all it seems to be doing is collecting cobwebs. So I urge you guys, if you have an idea, please send it my way. But speaking of depravity, next week, we're going to focus our attention on a Canadian couple named Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, sometimes referred to as the Canon Barbie Killers. If you're familiar with the UK's killer couple, Fred and Rose West, you might know what kind of territory we'll be getting into next week. It's not for the faint of heart, and it's infuriating enough that you'd almost wish you could grab a tire iron and get five minutes alone with these two. Almost. But until then, stay safe everyone, and I'll see you all next week here at the Human Delicatessen. <laughs>